0: Um, it is my pleasure to introduce um, Jason Clark. Dr. Jason Clark is our speaker. Um, he is an officer of the US Army, but is currently serving um, as an exchange officer in the Initiative school of the British Army's Chief of the General Staff. Um, Jason Clark is not only a practitioner, he's also very much involved in academia. He has taught um, at West Point, um, he has a doctorate in history from Duke University. And la- um, later this year, I think, yes. Harvard University Press will publish his book, and I'm sure he will um, write more references on that after the talk as well. It's called Preparing for War, Four Generations of the US Army on Peace, War, and Change from 1815 to 1970. It's my pleasure to have you here um, as our speaker today, Um, and yes. Oh, great! Well, thank you so much, Annette. So, uh, thank you all for for coming. It's uh, it's a delight to see uh, anybody in the room, particularly having so many distinguished faces uh, who uh, who I esteem and respect greatly. Um, And thank you to Annette uh, for having me, and also to Rob Johnson uh, who made the the initial offer. Uh, You know, what what a pleasure to be uh, here at Oxford with CCW. in my my role as an academic in the United States, uh, of course, you know, very uh, conscious of everything that was coming out as far as the scholarship out of here. But it wasn't until I came to the UK in the role of the practitioner that I started to see, um, I think, a difference, and one that that speaks well to the UK about how much uh, there is the the interplay of you know of academic inquiry and policy decision. Uh, don't want to overstate it, um, but uh, but certainly people take uh, uh, in Whitehall and take uh, notice of what goes on in places like this, uh, and um, and it's that spirit that I'm here today as both a uh, drawn upon my uh, historical research as an academic, but also looking to its you know taking the insights uh, to how that might be applied to to today's problems. Um, I do have to have, and I've been given permission uh, for the shameless plug. Uh, the uh, The publishers, evil publishers, have since uh, changed the uh, the subtitle. It is now the emergence of the U.S. Army, 1815 to 1917. It's a little bit more Whiggish than I would uh, would like, uh, but it should come out uh, hopefully around December timeframe. Uh, the, the exact uh, publication date will be decided here uh, pretty pretty quickly. Uh, uh, and also, I have to have the the, the disclaimer that uh, the views are my own; they're not the new, the views of the U.S. Department of Defense, or certainly not the British military uh, Ministry of Defense either. So, with that, let's let's launch straight into it. Um, at first blush, uh, you might wonder why uh, the the U.S. Army of the 19th century is even really worth paying to pay, paying attention to in today's climate. Um, uh, you know in 1898 it was 27,000 strong and so with all the wailing and gnashing of teeth we have currently about you know whether here in the UK whether 82,000s enough in the US whether 450,000 is enough it seems like such a bygone time that there might not be anything that we can necessarily learn from that um, and also uh, there is uh, you know it is the, the military professionalism of the 19th century is easily parodied as being this proudly anti-intellectual uh, bit, and so there might seem very little, as far as even method that we could learn from uh, from that group. Um, and I would, but I would remind everybody that um, while there is some merit in the uh, uh, the criticisms of that time, uh, both here where there's also a certain amount of amateurish amateurishness in the 19th century, um, the, you know, the, we, the they were able to conquer an empire in the, for the UK, uh, and then also a continent for the US. And so there was something that they were doing right. Uh, and they were doing pretty good at it until they weren't, and conditions changed. And at that point, um, you know, in the early 19th century, uh, actually, and, and surprisingly enough, in, in both places at about the same time. Um, 1898, 1900, um, you know, the limitations of that old professionalism were, were pretty viciously uh, revealed. Uh, so, which brings me to one question that I'd like you to keep in mind for today. Uh, so, professionalism was good, conditions changed, no longer, it no longer uh, was quite sufficient. So, are Iraq and Afghanistan leading indicators that our present military professionalism has also come up against the buffers? Uh, and we need some sort of uh, new concept. Um, If so, and I think that we should at least entertain the possibility, whether you agree or not, um, then perhaps the process by which the 20th century notion of professionalism supplanted that of the 19th century might have some lessons for us as we go to a post-20th century form of military professionalism. Um, First, I should kind of outline what uh, I view as the, the differences between the 19th and the 20th century. Um, so superficially, the differences in warfare are obvious. Um, in 1815, you have the armies arrayed in linear patterns, linear formations bristling with flintlock muskets and you know, smoothbore cannon of the Napoleonic era, um, led by officers adorned with you know, large hats and gold braid and, and whatnot. Um, by 1917, armies look really different. Um, Soldiers, uh, well, one, they're armed with magazine-fed rifles, steel artillery, machine guns, tanks, airplanes. Um, But also, you know, and officers and soldiers alike wear these olive drab uniforms that, while infinitely more practical than all of the the braid and whatnot, also suggest there's a loss of individuality within this undifferentiated mass uh, for everybody the machine, uh, the big green machine, um, but that's superficial. Uh, the less obvious but equally stark change was the mode of uh, command. Went from informal direction that was grounded in the person- personality of the commander to a system of formal control using impersonal staff procedures. And so if we envision this on the one side, you have you know, the, the general on horseback on the hill with aides coming and going frantically with, with messages. Now, in 1917, you still might have the the, the uh, commander uh, touring the front lines and giving direction, but really most of where the command and control is back in the rear, when you have a you know this large staff turning out large complex orders based off of procedures that they had learned at staff colleges um, previously in peace. Um, so that change is the methodological equivalent of the sartorial change from gold braid to olive drab. Um, undeniably more functional, um, but an element of personality uh, was sacrificed in the transition, and individuals lost autonomy as they were subsumed within this larger uh, organizational mass. Uh, but with that more restrictive professionalism came a huge increase in military effectiveness. Uh, the US Army is a great example, 1898, uh, General uh, William Pecos Bill, very colorful uh, name there, Shafter, um, struggled to uh, command and control just three divisions within Cuba, and those were primarily made up of, uh, and a few batteries, and those were primarily made up of regulars. And so there was no, no question that this was you know uh, citizen soldiers who weren't ready for war. It was a very well-drilled, well-organized, well-equipped force, um, and he struggled with it. We fast-forward just 20 years later, and you look at the AEF, and then there, were, and I will be uh, the first to say there were many problems with the AEF, but the ability of uh, the AEF to take uh, a group that was overwhelmingly made up of draftees and other recent civilians and move them around the battlefield, uh, when you compare it to the, the struggle with just three divisions in Cuba, um, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible shift. Uh, and so... Uh, the development that underpinned that change was not technological, uh, although certainly there was enabling you know, uh, technologies that went and in, into that as well. But it was conceptual. And so the old professional professionalism was built upon the belief that military competence was a product of character, common sense, and natural aptitude. These innate qualities might be refined through experience or study, certainly but they were largely beyond the ability of the institution to manufacture. Uh, there was consequently little effort to train officers in anything but technical skills like engineering and gunnery, um, and so the result was a, it was a guild-like conception of, the, of professionalism that granted all members some degree of deference and left those at the middle or higher ranks largely unfettered in how they practiced their trade. The new professionalism, by contrast, was built upon the premise that the military profession was a body of expert knowledge that could be codified, imparted, and regulated. Umpired field training, professional education, tactical doctrine, implicit to all of these activities that we just take for granted with the modern military is that the Army can and indeed must shape the manner in which officers think and act. Uh, In hindsight, I mean, the the benefits of all these things are so clear that we might think that it was the product of design, Um, but the actual process was incremental, organic, and resisted by many officers. Um, The officers of 1815 were steeped in a romantic view of warfare uh, and an overwrought sense of individualism, and they would have found the notion that the institution could manufacture generals or commanders would be misguided and offensive. Um, Like blacksmiths and telephone switch operators, you know, the officers of the 19th century did not want to give up cherished ways of organizing themselves and thinking about themselves. Um, But at some point, we get to this point where the the later officers of the industrial uh, age and the progressive era in America, and being perhaps more accustomed to mechanical metaphor, um, they were more inclined to think of themselves as components within a larger apparatus. So, let me that kind of put a finer point on that by, by giving it some, some substance in, in personality. So it's the difference between Winfield Scott, you know, the uh, hero of 1812 and, and the Mexican War, and George C. Marshall, who, while we primarily think of him as his uh, World War II uh, duty as the chief of staff, uh, was one of the star staff officers who made this big AEF machine um, go, and actually that was the beginning of his of his rise. Well, I, I actually probably again a little bit earlier, but uh, still made his name. Um, and they're a useful contrast because both were exceptionally capable people, and both were committed to the profession. So it wasn't that there was a lack of seriousness or, or, boy, weren't they stupid back then. These are both highly credible people, but the organizations they're a part of are so vastly different in what they can achieve. Um, so uh, kind of you know, the question of how do we get to Denmark. So the question today is, so how, do we, how do you go from Scott to Marshall? Um, so much of the explanation for the difference between Scott and Marshall uh, really has nothing to do with the military at all. Um, to draw one more bit of contrast, in 1815 the United States was agrarian, candlelit, horse-drawn, and centered upon the eastern, eastern, eastern seaboard. Excuse me. In 1918 it was industrial, electric-powered, engine-driven, and spanned a continent and controlled bits elsewhere as well. And so in that, and I'll, I'll tease this out a little bit later on, but in that difference is where we start seeing the difference between Marshall and Scott because they're both products of those two uh, uh, bits of America. So something to think about, uh, what, how would we use, what uh, adjectives would we use for America today? And are they so different than those adjectives of 1917 that it's going to create an entirely new kind of officer? Uh, so, uh, and just as uh, the larger world continues to disprove uh, the end of, of history thesis, uh, military history is not done either and continues to march on. Um, And so at the risk of of seeming to curry favor with my hosts, um, I think that one of the most sensible uh, statements on the subject comes from Rob Johnson, uh, who in 2014 wrote, the character of war in the future will change as frequently as it has in the past. But there will be many striking continuities. Um, So for a host of reasons, militaries are quite good at continuity. Um, And sometimes they can actually be pretty good at change, too. Um, But the degree to which they are successful in rationalizing those two elements, continuity and change, is often determined by what is precipitating that change. And so let's let's do a, a, a brief look uh, at the, the current literature. So we I mean, have to contend with Samuel Huntington and the soldier in the state first, you know, if you're talking about military change. Um, so and then he's actually interesting because he's basically drawing upon the same source material uh, that I am, the army of the 19th century. Um, and his argument was that you know military professionalism flourished because it was unhindered by the corrosive effects of civilian liberalism. Uh, now, uh, since then, uh, uh, 1957 is when Soldier of the State came out. Uh, Basically, all of his historical arguments have been, you know, the props have been knocked out one by one about all of his characterizations about the 19th century army. Um, But, I mean, it's still, he's very influential in his overall uh, argument, Um, but I would note that my own work actually finds the exact opposite. So, it's not simply that he's a little bit wrong about saying that the army was more geographically uh, isolated than it was, but I argue that as professionalism, at least in the way that he defined it, of institutions like staff colleges and and the general staff, um, that actually uh, the change happened later. And it was because these ideas were percolating in from society rather than they were driven by uh, some sort of military functional imperative. Uh, To to fast forward uh, with apologies to Morris Janowitz, we then get to uh, um, Barry Posen in 1984 who uh, argued that military change is driven by uh, uh, outsiders, and so the the politicians within uh, the, the, the title of this talk, uh, that uh, militaries are so resistant to change you have to have some sort of outside influence comes in, perhaps aided by some mavericks internal to the, uh, the uh, military, and they impose change based off of a neo-realist uh, sort of impetus of some strategic threat arises. Um, a couple of years later, uh, Steven uh, uh, Peter Rosen challenged that. Um, he noted that it's really hard for an outsider to make the military change against its will, so he spoke about uh, generals, and usually some sort of general has both a vision, and then also has the organizational, bureaucratic warfighting skills in order to create uh, a certain uh, critical mass of younger officers with good career paths that can then take forward this, this vision and institute it across uh, the organization. Um, and he says, yeah, okay, maybe this all could be in response to some new strategic threat that arises. Um, but it also might simply be driven by uh, uh, you know internal competition for resources or even for prestige amongst you know, different arms. Uh, Subsequent subsequent scholarship has modified these contending views. Um, Summarizing some of this work very nicely, Theo Farrell and and Terry Tariff note that cultural, political, and technological factors also modify the course of change. Uh, And importantly, they also note that an external shock might be what drives change. Um, And so in summary, uh, the current scholarship of military adaptation offers three broad causes for change external direction that overcomes military conservatism, internal direction likely emanating from some visionary general or admiral, or an institutional reaction to an external shock, such as defeat or new technology. Um, And so I'll refer to these by the somewhat simplified shorthand of politicians, generals, and events. Uh, And these explanations do very well when we're trying to explain some discrete instance of change. You know, why was this field manual revised in such a way, or why did we reorganize the military in relation to this new technology that was coming in, all of those sorts of things. So it's, it's not that there's no merit in those. Um, such bounded events are usually a combination of those three factors. But sometimes the overall magnitude of the change is greater than the sum of such <coughs> small increments. And I think the case of Arthur L. Wagner uh, neatly illustrates this point. Uh, so Wagner uh, was uh, commissioned in 1875 out of West Point. Uh, in the 1890s, he, he was one of our uh, innovators in uh, military education, and so he essentially kind of created the uh, the foundation for a later staff college out of a school that was really just meant to teach lieutenants to you know be able to mount a proper guard. Um, he also was hailed as the master of maneuvers uh, at, in the early 20th century. And so he was one who really, uh, as we were trying to take European-style grand maneuvers, introduced large-scale, realistic field training, um, and very importantly, with the didactic element. And so at the end of it, an umpire was going to say, general, you did this right, or you did that wrong. Um, And so that learning element, as opposed to what they had before, which was just everybody going out and having a good time firing off blanks. Uh, And also, he was the foremost tactical uh, theoretician of uh, the age and his books were, um, uh, were kind of mandatory reading. So in 1904, he becomes essentially the head of training and education and, and doctrine within the general staff. And so everybody expected that Wagner, coming into this new position, general staff had just been created the year before, would make his ideas, would put them into regulations, and then this was his chance to make his his ideas law. But he insisted that this would be improper because for him, when his ideas were not a textbook, they weren't binding, and somebody could disagree with them. Now, he thought his ideas were right, but he wanted the, 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 the regimental commander, the colonel, to be able to do what he wanted to do, unbidden by uh, this overweening hand of the central. Doctrine and indoctrination are linked words. Um, but it's still, it's striking that the individual most responsible for creating the tools of indoctrination, schools, you know, theory, field maneuvers, he shrank from the logical implication, logical ends of his own work and said, no, 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 you you, you got you to gotta keep the autonomy alive. Um, so for him, these tools were just means of crafting a better version of the old profession, not creating an entirely new one. Uh, just a few years later, that had been turned on its head. Uh, the, um, he was sent, died... And in 1910, the president of the Army War College explicitly rejected the individualism of the 19th century. The main object of the school, he said, was, quote, to develop a a school of safe leadership for officers and not to encourage unusual and extraordinary methods. Uniformity of thought, uniformity of procedure, in solving problems of war are of the utmost importance, and we can safely leave the development of genius to chance, unquote. So in other words, the army would make individuals into the kinds of arm, uh, kinds of officers and commanders that it wanted. Um, then the American Experience Order I solidified this view because uh, for the first time in U.S. military history, the War Department was given control over the training and commissioning of all of the citizen soldiers coming in. And so they were given the keys and they felt like they had stamped um, uh, they didn't think they had done a great job there's a lot of things they wanted to do differently in hindsight but they had created this mass produced army and so the, the officer corps started thinking of itself in terms of making people into the kinds of commanders they wanted uh, and so in a 1923 lecture at the Army War College then Colonel George C. Marshall told the assembled members of the general staff that they had quote the power and the duty to indoctrinate the army so he fully embraced the this new idea that the institution could make a commander. Uh, a thought that would have offended uh, his predecessors not long before. So, you know, this is not politicians or generals or events. There's something you know a little bit deeper that is going on there, that is creating this difference in in, in outlook. Um, and really, what had happened was generational changes had accumulated um, with each different viewpoint on what it is to prepare for war, which is how I define a generation. Essentially, what defines a professional generation is is how it conceives of war and therefore what it concludes, how it should prepare for it. Um, And as they have different notions of that, that creates a slightly different aperture for what the institution can do. Um, But simply observing that generations think differently doesn't really help us that much and uh, um, it really isn't all that profound. Um, but one thing we should uh, zero in on is if you look at Prussia at the same time as Winfield Scott, so the the, the, the change that is, exempl- is embodied as within uh, Marshall had kind of, in a way, had come about in Prussia at the same time as Scott. So there wasn't any technological barrier to it. Um, and typically, most American military historians would say that uh, what happened was that it was uh, civilian ideological hostility to a standing army that kept everybody back. And certainly there wasn't going to be any large or- reorganizations and also they weren't going to be able to undertake anything that was resource intensive in time of peace because they really had no money. Um, but there's still a whole lot, and if you look at you know the example of Wagner, that was a deliberate choice not to go down the road of standardization of military professionalism. Um, so there was a lot that Uh, that simply the officer corps didn't want to do um, until for some reason they suddenly wanted to in the early 20th century. Uh, So what explains that? Um, So to give some some structure to our thinking about generational change, I propose that we we think of this, that professional generations are the products of three different categories of influence. Uh, The first of these categories is made up of all the institutional mechanisms that deliberately shape the profession. West Point, military schools, most obvious examples, uh, but it also includes policies that govern the selection of officers, systems of promotion, methods of organizing and giving preference to certain functional specialties over the others, the way that the institution can consciously craft itself into a certain way. Um, the second category is, are all those elements of military service that shape perceptions but are, that are outside of the ability of the institution to control. Uh, so, this encomp- encompasses everything from informal norms within subunits, like within a regimental uh, system, um, to uh, the simple lived experience, you know, what officers actually see in peace and war. Um, these indirect con- influences, I contend, are almost always more important in determining the character of, of the profession than the formal inputs, uh, simply by sheer weight of numbers. Four years at West Point early in the career versus four decades in a certain regiment. Uh, Or, uh, you know, the regulations uh, say one thing, but yet, you know, you lived through the Civil War and four years of of warfare taught you this other thing, whatever the drill regulations say. And so all of those lived experiences, uh, although it also could just be simple the effect of having um, incredibly slow promotion uh, throughout most 19th century. Usually it took about 30 years of service before you start getting to be a major. So those things have impacts. Um, the third category is essentially everything else, and so everything that is not strictly military. So it's the values, concepts, and outlooks inherited from civilian society, um, which also outweighs the formal uh, inputs. Uh, as with like you know West Point as an example, people have already been socialized for a good eighteen to twenty-two years before they even you know arrive at the gates of West Point. Um, And then society continues to act upon them even after they're commissioned, Um, which is why, you know, officer corps are recognizably members of their own society. Uh, They have attitudes about things, but it's not just, well, that's the civilian attitude, and I have purely military attitudes. Civilian attitudes of class can influence the way that officers and enlisted interact um, racial attitudes can certainly have a huge impact on operational decisions uh, when operating in foreign countries. Uh, and then also the, a, notion, a nation's sense of where it is in the world uh, can also influence uh, questions of strategy. So when we have all three of these factors combined, there's this, they create the social and military milieu that um, forms a generation. And I'm not saying that generations are monolithic. In fact, um, and this is something that I've taken very much from from Brian Lynn's work, um, you know, disagreement has been the norm, and so you can almost define a generation as much by its uh, points of disagreement as its points of consensus. Uh, and so, as an example, uh, for those of you who might know, uh, you know, John Noggle, you know, the f- famous uh John Gentile, the famous, I guess, anti Um Historians in the future will look back at that as being defining. You, you can't take that argument between those two, whatever side you come down on, and transplant it into the 1930s isolationist America. It, just, it doesn't make sense. And so what you choose to fight about really kind of d- defines uh, a generation. Um, So the context doesn't dictate a single set of views, but it does provide a common pool of ideas, values, and experience that bound the diversity that you can have. So as historian Daniel T. Rogers notes, because most individuals are users rather than shapers of ideas, our thoughts and actions are defined by the constellation of live, accessible ways of looking at society. Uh, Each generation of army officers was similarly defined by its own particular constellation of ideas that provided the raw material from which its members assembled their own method of preparing for war. When the encompassing milieu changed, so did the outlook of the officers, and a new generation was born." Uh, And so that helps explain how we got from Scott to Marshall. Um, But let's pause a little bit and look at some of the conceptual implications for this trinity. Uh, So I think there are three critical lessons that we should draw from this. Um, and to do this, I'll draw from the, the wonderful uh, Christopher Basford on his site as he uh, goes into uh, explaining uh, the Closbitzian trinity and he has you know, the, uh, uh, the magnetic arm you know, going in between you know, three different uh, 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 other magnetic poles and it kind of just swings around crazily as, as the different forces of those three uh, magnetic influences play upon it. So using that image, the first implication is that efforts to change the profession will always yield unexpected results. So let's imagine we have the magnetic arm, we've taken it back to that institutional apex uh, that I draw on, and so there's gonna be a firm hand that's gonna say we're gonna reform the military and it sends that arm along a path. Now, even though it's a straight and true force acting upon it, As soon as it goes out, it's going to start deviating. And so our efforts at reform are always going to change because on one side you're going to have military experiences are going to work against the institutional force. Um, That's because of maybe just old habits of of mind and the way that the uh, the officer corps thinks of that, it it has to do things. Or inter-service rivalry or whatever it is. But also culture, Um, cultural notions of fairness, of propriety, of prestige, all of those will also act upon it. So that initial course of reform is going to sway around uh, a little bit. And so we should expect that formal efforts to alter the profession will deviate from their intended course. There's a a corollary uh, that takes us to the the second implication. This This is my favorite. Institutional efforts to remain the same are also destined to fail for the exact same reasons. So let's use the uh, a little thought experiment. So let's imagine the Chief of Staff of the US Army in 2040. He or she is currently serving. Um, but let's imagine that General Mark A. Milley, the current Chief of Staff, had been able to say, I want to produce somebody just like me to be the Chief of Staff in 2040. And so we had frozen all of our institutional inputs in place. There's no change to our, our commissioning sources, no changes to our staff college, our war colleges. All the training systems have been the same. Accounting for you know, difference of personality, of course, would we have the same output in 2040? Well, of course not. Uh, General Milley was commissioned in, uh, let me check my notes, uh, early 1980s. Um a Cold War Army, served in a motorized division in the 1980s, deployed, deployed to Haiti as a brigade operations officer in 1994. Commanded brigades in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and then returned to Afghanistan as both a brigadier general and then again as a lieutenant general. So the unknown future chief of staff is about to say hypothetical, but they're they're real. We just don't know who it is. Um, was commissioned roughly around 2005. So that person has likely had multiple deployments as a company-grade officer to either Iraq, Afghanistan, or both. But even while they served in the same campaigns as General Milley. Um, he was a brigade commander with over two decades of commissioned serv- service that he's filtering his inputs from. That was probably their first operational deployment. Uh, maybe as platoon leader in Iraq during the surge, quite a different view. Uh, and then maybe in Afghanistan as a uh, company commander. Uh, and the future chief of staff is probably just promoted or soon to be pr- to promoted to major, still has many formative experiences to come in the years ahead. Um, then also being a millennial as opposed to a baby boomer you know there's all sorts of very different inputs and still be a very different person even if we wanted to freeze the institution in place. Um, The third implication is that while uh, the institution can neither command nor resist change, it can aid it by redirecting the forces of experience and culture into (coughs) what it views as positive outcomes that in that you know increase military effectiveness. Uh, and I think a good example of this,, um, uh, although as somebody who's written uh, pretty persuasively about the subject, um, the root reforms uh, of the early 20th century, so 1899 to 1903, they didn't create George C. Marshall. I think he probably would have had the same sort of systems-oriented thinking no matter what, because that was just pervasive in Progressive Era in America. But he was certainly much, much better for it, for having gone to Leavenworth and served there for four years, and gone through all these big, large training camps that allowed him the opportunity to be a staff officer directing thousands, which for the U.S. Army at the time was a big number, Um, and it helped hone his experiences. And so this combination of the institutional aspect and the cultural aspect working so powerfully in combination uh, was what helped make things work out as, as, as well as they did. Um, I'll leave you to, to judge how good the AEF did. Uh, and this, is, this isn't surprising, because Root was the epitome of the Progressive Era. Uh, corporate New York lawyer, good friends with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, one of the uh, 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 leading members in the professionalization of the legal profession. Uh, he was a, a member of the New York uh, Bar. I mean, he he had the zeitgeist, and so what he was doing was taking the institution the way that s- society was taking it anyway. So, uh, with those three insights in mind, what are the exact implications for today? Um, so, I think first we should talk about what the uh, the current generations are, and as we do so, to to remain well tentatively at least within my area of military expertise, such as it is, I'll talk about only the British uh, the U.S. Army, though I feel that British culture. Army organization, and recent military experiences are similar enough that much of what is to follow would also apply to Her Majesty's forces. Um, but there are some very interesting potential differences, the impact of the regimental system, the legacy of Northern Ireland, and the different demographics from which the officer corps are drawn uh, from just to be some of the most obvious ones. And maybe that's that's something we could discuss in questions. Um, I'll, I also should say I'm going to confine this to the officer corps. Uh, in the 19th century, certainly, the military profession was synonymous with the officer corps. Today, you can make an argument against it. Officially, the US Army includes the uh, enlisted and Army civilians as members of the Army profession. Um, um, perhaps they are professionals, um, but their systems of socialization are so different that you can't speak of in any meaningful way of them as being as part of the same bit as the officer corps. So I will, will limit my discussion to that. So three generations today. Uh, the first is what I'll call the superpower generation. Okay. Uh, commissioned in the mid-1980s to earlier. Uh, so right now, these are senior brigadiers uh, and then two stars and higher. Um, they came into the army that was configured, postured for the Cold War. Um, their operational experiences were uh, Grenada, Panama, Desert Storm, Somalia, um, uh, the Balkans. Uh, and also in their baby boomers. Uh, The long war generation is the second, and this this encompasses a very large span, all the way from brigadier to captain. The upper boundary uh, is drawn, and so those commissioned in the late 1980s, which differentiates those who experienced Iraq and Afghanistan at the company or battalion level, or as more junior staff officers in the, in the, the higher staffs, from the superpower generation, which would have commanded at nothing lower than the brigade level and provided the staff directors or division chiefs of the large operational and theater headquarters. Um, so thus the Long War generation was more at the whip end of events in Iraq and Afghanistan and also entered those conflicts with little or no previous experience, combat experience. Now I've set the lower boundary uh, somewhere around the early part of this decade. Um, so the youngest members of this group uh, are still very much in their formative period of their careers, and the history of Iraq and Afghanistan is still being written. So the boundary, I reserve the right to shift it at some later time, um, uh, and this might be just because Iraq and Afghanistan continue to drag out, but also it could be could shift earlier if, say, next year there's some seismic event that, as we look at it, you know, uh, is so much more uh, influential within their Cohort, because now there's only, you know, the, the numbers in, in Afghanistan and in, in Iraq are much smaller. And so there could be something that's just around the corner that will have a huge influence upon this group when we look back at it retrospectively. Uh, and so I, I don't have any hard and fast rules as far as the, the generations, because it's really about the experiences, and there's still some game to be played. Um, uh, and then culturally, uh, you know, Gen Xers. Uh, Maybe some millennials, depending upon how you draw those boundaries. Um, So that brings us to the most intriguing element, I think, which is what I'll call the nascent generation. And so at present, lieutenants, cadets, but many are still out there, uh, still in school. And so what influences will shape the professional worldview of this group that will be our colonels and generals in the 2030s and 2040s? Um, Because really, uh, that is, you know, uh, CGS. That's that's who he's trying to form right now, that that far out group. In terms of institutions, um, despite a chorus of outside voices calling for radical change to officer education and personnel systems, there are no indications that the military is going to change anytime soon. So we have a socialization system with a, a school system that was put in place uh, after World War II that goes from a commissioning source at West Point or univ- uh, Civilian University, ROTC, up through war colleges and a couple of, of general officers courses, but those are, are, are actually fairly light touches. Um, and so every few years there's a sense that we have to, we have to kind of re-green and instill some knowledge into these officers so they can proceed to the next level. Um, evaluation forms, I mean, have changed quite dramatically in the actual form, but the actual substance of how officers are evaluated has changed very little. Um, and very just just recently, the the U.S. Army rejected the notion of three hundred and sixty degree evaluations as being too disruptive. Uh, and then also the system of accessions, promotions, and career development, uh, which is based upon the pre World War II uh, up or out system, uh, intriguingly introduced by Marshall, um, has weathered a determined assault by Undersecretary of Defense uh, for Personnel and Readiness Brad Carson, who initially at least had the support of uh, SecDef Ash Carter. Um, But despite that seemingly overwhelming high-level support uh, for the the initially much touted Force of the Future initiative, uh, the service chiefs uh, were reportedly successful in fending off most of the proposals, uh, which has been considered a disappointing result for the reformers. And in light of such a defeat, uh, I'll be interested to see uh, when somebody's going to try to pick that uh, cudgel up again. Uh, It might be quite a while before anybody wants to make Huge changes to the personnel system. So in some, institutions are probably going to remain fairly much like they are now, uh, pending some out of the blue reformer. Um, but then this we still have the uh, military experiences and the cultural inputs. Um, So let's explore the matter of experience first. Now, obviously, this is still history to be written, but as a thought experiment, let's suppose that there will be no all-consuming war in the next two decades. Instead, there'll be many, I'm not saying there'll be peace, but many different smaller operational uses of the Army, disaster relief, at home, building partner capacity, um, uh, some more challenging and dangerous training and advise efforts that look a whole lot like combat to people on the ground, and then some things that also are undoubtedly combat, um, but only in small-scale crises. And so they don't impact the whole institution. Um, now, for historians, you know, in, the fu- in the future, they might pass over these because they only infract- uh, impact a small fraction of the military. But for the people who are involved in those kinds of events, that is a very significant event um, and influences the way they think. Um, But so some members of the nascent generation would have multiple of those experiences, some maybe one or two, some might have nothing at all, it would all just be peacetime training and garrison routine. And so you'd have this generation with a lot of very disparate, diverse experiences. And so, uh, and then also there's functional differences as well. Infantrymen, aviator, logistician also all have different uh, views of the world. Um, So I think that they'd be far less cohesive in terms of their experience than the long war generation, which, and I don't want to say that there was a, a, you know, unified, experience of Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, just in Mosul, if you were there 2003 versus 2006 versus 2010, those are very different sorts of experiences, m- much less Baghdad, much less Kandahar. Um, but still, the long war generation is a little bit more bounded um, than the hypothetical nascent generation. The, now, the other aspect then is what what might effect culture might have on the nascent generation. Uh, so all the officers who will be commissioned in this de- decade and the next, um, are already alive, so we at least know some of the cultural inputs that they, you know, will have uh, influenced. <laughs> um, but still, they have long lives ahead of them, and so there's there's much to be said, uh, much that hasn't been uh, seen yet either. But let's imagine two different paths: one a little bit more of, continu- of cultural continuity, one of change. Um, now, I submit that since the p- upheaval of the 1960s. Cultural continuity has kind of been uh, has been the, uh, the norm. So the baby boomers flow into the Gen Xers, flow into the millennials or Generation Ys, whatever you want to call them. Um, and so if this continues, then the military result might be something very much like the post-Civil War generation, which uh, has something very similar. They also went through West Point that looked a lot like everything that had existed since 1820s, and so they had the same professional socialization. They also served in the shadow of this great conflict, in their case the Civil War, um, but lacked a unifying experience of their own time. Uh, And so going back to Arthur Wagner, the the, the innovator who I uh, mentioned, that was his experience. Um, And culturally, there was a lot of continuity with the 19th century america as well certainly it wasn't static but you know there was a, a bit that with the individual uh, was was very strong and uh, and can, can can be seen as a linking between the diff- different generations so if that's the case for the nascent generation they'll be different than the long war generation the superpower generations but for the most part they will probably be content with the same Uh, understanding of their professionalism and the way that they react with the institution. What happens if cultural change predominates? Uh, And I think this notion is plausible. So if we look at the extraordinary political turmoil within and among the political parties uh, in both the U.S. and the U.K., uh, the dislocation of economic sectors and the potentially unsustainable distribution of wealth The dissatisfaction with social structures manifested in such quite different forms as Black Lives Matter and nativist militias, all of this occurring within a technological environment that allows us to organize politically, economically, and socially in different ways than we were able to do before. Um, I can't possibly hope to unpick all of that, Uh, but I only just raise those points to observe that when political, economic, and social organizations are all undergoing a simultaneous and significant change, it seems like that will have a significant impact on culture that will, in turn, inevitably manifest itself in the military. Uh, And so that kind of shift would be what we saw in moving from the Gilded Age to the Progressive Era right around the turn of the century. And that was the same change that resulted in the difference between Scott and Marshall. what do we what do we make all of this um, for the superpower generation? Um, you know they're they've, they're past the point of standardized uh, 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 career progressions and everything like that. Um, and they're but to their credit, they realize that they're different and the, the the junior officers and soldiers of today. Um, but then, invariably, there are going to be some uh, misunderstandings in how they approach it, even though they're trying to do so in good faith. Uh, uh, I remember a couple years ago in the Pentagon. Uh, I was working on a project where led by superpower generation general officers who were talking about say how do we transition from Afghanistan to a more generalized uh, you know threat. Now these are all people who had been brigade commanders or battalion commanders in the 1990s. and so they talked they kept on using re as a prefix. Uh, they wanted to restore uh, you know the lost art of garrison leadership. They wanted to regain fundamentals. And uh, with little success, the younger officers kept on trying to warn them off this, because the post-9/11 generation had this horrible image in their mind of the Army of the 1990s as an endless round of small-minded, pointless tasks, you know, uh, painting rocks and whatnot. Um, that just and so that, that no, the, the differences in perspective uh, led to a lot of miscommunication and a lot of pushback within the, uh, uh, the force. And the lesson to be drawn from this is that it's always a fraught situation when one party is referring to what they experienced and what was real for them versus what another party is merely an abstraction. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so you have to wonder, what's going to be the difference between the way that the long war generation sees the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan versus the nascent generation, which draws their understanding of it from a combination of youthful impressions, um, history books, War stories and perhaps the Hurt Locker. Um, so the Long War generation. My research has suggested that wartime generations generally are not very good at adaptation. Uh, they tend to adapt very poorly, um, and it's not simply that generals want to refight the last war as they've been uh, accused of doing. Instead, it's because that is that experience is the shared. It, it's it's the war is the lingua franca. For professional discourse, everybody can go back to it. And so, even though we might have our own ideas about what we should have done differently, that same set of shared experiences is the medium through which all discussion about what the profession should be flows. Um, So, there's a a shared understanding difficulty. Um, But also, I mean, there's, you know, war is visceral. And so, it's also within uh, individuals. And the example I use from the, the, the scholarship is. Uh, all of these young officers who were at Fort Leavenworth in the early uh, part of the century, uh, most of them had seen combat in the Philippines, where the Filipinos were... Uh, <laughs> it's embarrassing to say this in front of somebody who's written the book on the, the war, um, but um, you know the Filipinos preferred uh, to have trenches. They would uh, fire off a few volleys as soon as the Americans started counterattacking they would go run away because the weapons weren't very good, they weren't very well led, and also they didn't need to, they had kind of achieved their purpose. And so American officers learned entrenchments are not effective, firepower is not effective. Now if you had asked any of them explicitly, can you take that uh, uh, those lessons and, and apply them over to German grenadiers, they said, of course not, they called it savage warfare. Yeah, you can't take savage warfare. As they are at uh, Fort Leavenworth in the Staff College and they're studying German textbooks, talking about you know, basically a Franco-German war, um, those deeply held beliefs uh, were manifested in uh, the way that they, they saw uh, the f- effectiveness of infantry and firepower. Now, of course, the doctrine of the offensive was very uh, prevalent in Europe as well, uh, so it's not just the Philippines. But what was uniquely American was the hubris from 1914 to 1917 that caused (laughs) no revision of doctrine in the entire period. Verdun and Somme made no impression. So when the first doughboys went over the top in May 1918, the infantry tactical manual still said that that machine guns were weapons of emergency only. And that rifle fire was more important than artillery. Um, So could the long war generation similarly be prisoners rather than beneficiaries of our experience? Um, We will see. But I think we need to uh, uh, maintain some humility uh, in how we go about this. Uh, So the nation generation, finally uh, wrapping up here. if they do not experience an all-consuming conflict, and I certainly hope they don't, then maybe they're like the, the post-Civil War generation. In which case, we should probably try to uh, uh, use systems of training and education to give them a holistic view. So rather than sniping and saying, well, that's not the real army over there. You know, I, I'm an infantryman you know, uh, you know, focused on light fights and there's a tanker focused on heavy warfare. That's not the real fight. We need to create a, a more of a sense of we, rather than parochial and provincial um, us and them. Uh, also, very wide-ranging uh, education and wide-ranging uh, training, rather than having everybody go through the exact same scenario at the national training center, uh, it probably doesn't help uh, expand our, our horizons. Um, but then the other thing will be what happens if they're just so far different that they really are a different sort of culture? Um, much like Marshall was from, from Wagner. Um, there's gonna be huge, just simple, you know, uh, uh, intergenerational tensions that arise from that. But for more substantive things, uh, a recent Army war College study noted the tendency of general officers to use intuition, which is exactly the wrong way of going about this uh, in the us Army we very recently had a, a massive problem where a well meaning sergeant major who was put in charge of reforming the uh, uh, uniform and appearance regulations said you, know, you can 't have tattoos it's unmilitary which um, if you actually look back at history in tattooed warrior societies, probably it's the other way around that you know tattooed is military. But this had very real consequences because we wrote off a massive part of an already shrinking uh, recruiting base. So we need to make sure that we use evidence to, to guard against our bias as we make decisions, but also we should follow the, the advice of the uh, chief of the air staff who said it is absolutely imperative that I do not build an air force for a 56-year-old man. It is there the young airmen's of today's Air Force, not mine. Uh, but I think that the uh, the final point that I'll make, and this is the one that uh, it's very hard for me to get my mind wrapped around. Uh, but the difference between 19th century and the 20th century was this conception of the individual and the organization and how they, they interacted with it. As we see the gig economy, um, where people tend to be moving around, and expertise is kind of commoditized, and corporations are making very uh, hard, uh, hard-nosed decisions about what sorts of expertise we keep within the organization, and then using insourcing, outsourcing, you know, uh, freelance labor. <clears throat> people are viewing the way that they react with their employer, which is in, in some ways the way they view within their, uh, their role in society very differently and expertise is viewed differently. And we've already started seeing this a little bit within the military of bringing in people uh, from the outside to advise us on corporate type of things, acquisitions, um, management of the estate, all of this. Um, But if you follow that to its logical conclusion, and then the next step then is to bring them in not as lieutenants, but at the mid grades and lateral entry, and, and both armies are considering this very seriously. Well, if you are, you know, a great HR expert, we'll just bring you in and we'll have you run HR for us and we'll make you a major write off or maybe a general. Um, as those sorts of practices go, right now, just like Wagner said, I, don't, I only want to go this far, I don't want to go any further, we say, well, okay, but we're going to keep the military functions are going to be sacrosanct and we're not going to get into that. But if you follow the logic of the whole force approach that we say is so important, if we're in a stabilization operation that is 90% governance and economics and, and all these other sorts of bits and it's only 10% kinetic. What's to say that we don't have a diplomat or development expert or maybe even a CEO who seems to be able to get things done coming in as a command? Um, that would you know, uh, make a lot of uh, heads explode in the officer's mess. Um, but there is a certain logic to it and if people view the you know, expertise as being portable and being used for specific tasks, and they're just not used to these top-up structures where you go to work for GE and you're you know, in the GE way and, and you go up uh, through the ranks, then maybe that won't seem as far-fetched uh, as it does to me being a product of my own generation. Um, uh, so with that, uh, I'll say will all that come to pass? And if it does, nothing says that the cultural change is good for military effectiveness. Uh, it could be negative. Um, but I make no firm predictions on either count. Uh, whatever does come will be driven by larger forces and not the needs and certainly not the wishes of the military. I am confident, however, that at some point in the future, society will undergo some change that will make my own notions of military professionalism seem quaint and antiquated. Thank you. Thank you.